and how they um, amplify each other, how they orient each other. And again, how it's hard to see any one of them being uh, deeply functional for long if it were the only quality of heart that we were cultivating. And so the, in some ways they only make sense when, more, when many parts of our hearts come online and learn how to coordinate and learn how to blend. And the image of a choir has worked for me where if you get, <clears throat> as if you've got 52 people on a stage, supposedly there are 52 moving parts of the mind and you all had them sing, it's not great that they all shout at their loudest voice. That's not the best choir. It's the loudest choir. It's the most cacophonous choir. But they do all have to learn how to get their individual voice out, but have it harmonize with other choir members. So if we were all to hum together and try to find a tone, it wouldn't be helpful for any one of us to overpower anybody else. The sweetest sound would be when uh, many parts of us come together into integration, harmonize, support, um, and enhance each other. So a symphony that's just made up of one flute, can, the flute can only do so much, but when it's mixed in with all the other instruments, it rounds out the sound of what a symphony can offer. And so every voice rounds out what the choir can offer. And that's, <clears throat> that actually, that image holds for what Buddhist psychology looks like. We don't just want to have one factor or several factors become the loudest factors of our personality or our strategies for happiness. We want to work on them individually to see if we understand them. And then we want to take out contradictions that would pit one against the other and see how do they come together. And then you'll find that the most beautiful version of equanimity is harmonized by compassion, by sympathetic joy, and by loving kindness. This is actually worth tracking to get to know the best version of any one of them is had they accidentally pushed another one off the stage. So if you had a quartet on a small stage and they all fit there, uh, they might all sing at once. One might step forward to be the lead singer for a certain part of the expression of the quartet, using a quartet now instead of a choir to just look at these four Brahmaviharas. But sometimes <clears throat> I've, been so drawn into the heart space of compassion that without knowing it, I push joy off the stage. And that has happened several times in my life where I've been so engaged in the suffering of my family or the suffering of my community that without knowing it, I made a block to joy. I made a block to medita. I made a block uh, to the ability to recognize what's beautiful. So, and that began to actually undermine my, the quality of my compassion. It just wasn't good to have only compassion 
being the operatic singer on the stage and drowning out everything else. And it turns out that all these factors of mind, you can use the four of the Brahma Vihara, but Haras, but when you look at all the Buddhist factors of mind, they all want to harmonize and support each other and they all draw out the best of each other. So this is one model to feel into what the integration of heart is like and what the ripened heart is like, is that all these factors begin to um, feel nearby, but one takes a lead. One factor or several factors might take a lead, like compassion and patience might take a lead. And some other point is spontaneity and joy that take the lead. Um, so this, I hope this is helpful. And I'll give an example of how this, this can happen. So when I was working for the uh, homeless shelter, when I was in my 20s, because it was my daily activity to work with homeless kids, without knowing it, I began to see all the negative consequences of not loving children. I began to see how much uh, these kids had been hurt. There was a time in my life where I was doing a lot of uh, family review about habits that I had um, taken in by my own family structure. I started having a lot of compassion for humans and how sensitive we are and how often overwhelmed we are in our families growing up. And with what felt like loyalty to compassion and understanding and the courage to be compassionate, I started seeing everybody as somebody wounded. I started seeing everything as a wounding potential. So I was shopping once for food and I saw this uh, parent pushing their child trying to take care of the grocery list and the child was trying to engage them in play and they were just, I had tuned them out. They're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. But really they were trying to, I was like, that's a wounding moment. That's a wounding moment. And it's not untrue, but it, my sensitivity to how, where harm creeps in, it got so forward. So compassion was my great, operatic singer holding this incredible um, expression of the tragedies of life. And I didn't want to be, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, flimsy in my relationship to compassion. So without knowing it, I got deep into this compassion channel, but it made everything look like a tragedy. It made everything seem sour, uh, sorrowful maybe, but sorrowful. And then I really began to see the human species as something so loaded with uh, shortcomings and pains, and there's so much grief coming. And I was, again, lucky to have some mentors who um, could hear me going on and on about how much suffering there was in the world and how grief-stricken I was. And they would ask me, like, when's the last time you laughed? When's the last time you went out and played with your friends? When's the last time you really celebrated? And it didn't seem like it was legitimate to laugh again. Like the world was just too broken and there was just too much harm in it. 
And that was also an immature relationship to some Buddhist teachings where they want, we want to be honest about how difficult life is, but we don't want that to be the only view. That wouldn't be a wise view. That wouldn't be a transformational view. So I got too far in that direction and then had some skillful people say, you have to take in the beauty of the world. You have to make contact, you'll burn out and you'll lose perspective if you don't also connect to the beauty. So then there's compassion and there's also mudita, there's karuna and mudita, there's compassion, there's sympathetic joy. We have to actively cultivate the sympathetic joy. And then there can feel like there's a, a discrepancy between the two, it's like, if I'm over in the joy, I'm not aware of the, the sorrows. If I'm over in the sorrows, I'm not aware of the joys. But <clears throat> just like uh, bringing two circles and having them overlap, and you look through and you see both joys and sorrows, you know you're an integrated heart when you can see both the beauties and the joys of the world. And that heart hasn't pushed one off the stage to be loyal to the other. And that's when I know I'm in my healthiest uh, frame of heart is that I can see what's painful and what's heartbreaking about any part of the world, you know, a small detail or something quite large. But if I also can't see what's beautiful, and if I also can't appreciate what's beautiful right in front of me, it's not the most ripened view. It's not the most healthy view. And it can fall over into compassion, into grief, into reactivity, into despair. You'll know people who are so afraid of compassion that they're trying to fall over into optimism and everything is good and they don't even want to touch what's difficult. And that's also fragile. It's fragile to only be looking for what's pleasant about life because Life isn't always pleasant. And so there's a running away from pain if you only want the joys. But if you can rock back and forth between the two and see it is like this, it is like this. There are a lot of ordinary moments. There are interruptions of pain and suffering that can be mild or they can be absolutely massive, but they're never so strong that they become the only truth. And the same with joys. They can be incredible, they can be light, but they never become the final story. And that's what a human life is like. That's what life on this planet is like. It's to be a, a conscious participant on this planet is to be open to this fluidity uh, and unpredictability of joys, sorrows, and then a lot of moments that become familiar and they don't necessarily have the taste of elation or of this uh, sorrow. And that's what ripens with equanimity. I think we've pointed at this um, throughout the week that over time equanimity is that balance point where you can uh, sit or stand in the middle of this and find that it is, because it is like this, I'm not thrown by how things are. It actually is like this, I can see it's like this. And so, yeah, these are the joys, these are the sorrows, and I walk between them.
I'm open to both sides of them. When uh, I was being taught the Brahma Viharas when I was first starting, my teacher, Michelle McDonald, gave an image that when you walk across a tightrope, you don't try to get all of you right on top of the tightrope. You actually want to reach out. And by reaching as far out as you can, doesn't work for the screen here, <laughs> but you know, reaching way out actually gives the strength of the balance point that has a heart that can go all the way into what is sorrowful and all the way to what's joyful. And then you can actually walk across something that needs a lot of balance, but not by pulling it in. And that's one of the, um, one of the tastes of equanimity when it's not a, a strength. When you're just looking for safety, you might pull in and not want to make contact with what's joyful and what's difficult and try to find equanimity by just putting everything right in the middle. And that's not the most um, healthy state to be in. It's not the, the most secure place to be in to try to pull into the center, but actually reach out from the center and walk between them. And you can see these, uh, um, these acrobats that are willing to walk on a wire uh, between two buildings up in, I forget the name of the movie, um, but there's a guy that was his whole life was being able to do these incredible risks. But he did it because he had a bar that he held on to that went out to either side and it gave him great balance in the middle point. And that's what I've learned about the Brahma Viharas is that metta and equanimity are right in the middle, but they're strengthened because of compassion and sympathetic joy, compassion and joy practice. And if I'm open to both of those in not equal amounts, I'm not sure if it's ever precisely equal, but if I'm open to both, the way that I find balance in life is, is greatly increased. And I'm not as thrown when life serves up a lot of one or the other, or unpredictably serves up joys and sorrows. I can actually walk with my feet underneath me, with the func I can be functionally heart connected because I am open to what's joyful and what's sorrowful. I've switched those a few times, I've noticed. <laughs> sometimes the compassion's over here and sometimes it's over here. Hope that's not disorienting for you. Of all the things that could be confusing, that's probably not one of them. Another image that uh, worked for me is um, once I went to visit my, my teacher, Michelle McDonald, on Hawaii. And Hawaii has a, a mountain peak that's um, the top of the, one of the highest volcanoes is 1400 feet. So it's an incredibly high, it just goes right from the ocean, straight up 1400 feet. But it's actually higher than that because the, the slope of the, of the island actually goes down way underground. And so when I live my life at the water level, joys can take me only so high. But when I'm open to 
feel what's difficult about life, joys are twice as high, they're 10 times as high, because I, my heart can open to what's difficult. So it makes little things have all this joy to them when they're put right next to what is painful. And I can stand to go into what's painful because I, it's not costing me connection to what's beautiful. Uh, I can find beauty in uh, suffering and I can find beauty in the joy. And because my heart has learned to blend these well together, I find the healthiest expression of all of them. I don't get lost in the joy, expecting it's now something I can count on to be eternal. I don't get lost in the pain. Um, I'm expecting the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year to have a mixture of it. And because of that, I find a balance inside that I didn't when I really only wanted the good things and I was apprehensive or grief stricken by what was difficult. And that's, um, that's all woven all through the Buddhist teachings is to see reality for what it is, see the nature of reality, and then find you can actually live with a kind of unshakable contentment, not because you've shut down or controlled reality, but you have a maybe I think it's called Man on a Wire is the name of the movie where the guy walks between two buildings and even dances on the rope. We could call this the heart on the wire that uh, can walk and have these two wings uh, open in us. And there again, you see how the four Brahma Viharas can play well together. They harmonize with each other. They allow the great expression of any one of them and you wouldn't be thrown off by any one great expression of compassion or of celebration, joy. Um, but if you only have one of them, you'll fall to that side. It's not as stable. One practical uh, way to do that is if you actually can catch up and feel life on its terms life itself will show you that it's not only made up of painful experiences and it's never only made up of painful experiences. If you're willing to be open to the pain, you'll find that it, there is an incredible amount of beauty right in the pain, right in the same territory of the pain. And the same <clears throat> when you open up to what's beautiful, when you really feel into it, it's not only something to be celebrated, there's right in it is things to be tenderly hearted connected to like the birth of my sister's five kids. If I didn't look at it very closely. It would some, be something only joyful, but if I felt into it, it was joyful and it made all her siblings, uh, all her other kids now had to struggle a bit more for attention. There were some insecurities being born is a very vulnerable state and there are pains that come with being born. And so if I don't look very closely, I might only say, this is joyful. I feel into it, it's like it is joyful. And there are some really heart wrenching parts of it. And you can go towards what's difficult and say, yeah, it was difficult, but it wasn't only difficult. Once my heart actually was willing to be 
in this greater range of life, you'll find that it's all there. And when you discover that there is more of this heart quality of equanimity where you can say, it is like this, it is like this. And that's not a cost to what gives you contentment. It's not a cost to feeling secure. It actually gives you a greater sense of security because you're open to how life is. You can be responsive because you have a type of balance in you, your feet are under you, so you can be responsive. And as you go towards what's difficult, you'll, you can trust, you'll actually find enough beauty along the way that I don't mind heading towards what's difficult because I don't assume it'll only be difficult. Or I don't get lulled into sleep, that's something I'm expecting to be pleasant will only be pleasant. I'm expecting it to be life and it will have parts of it that will be challenging as well. And that's no longer disappointing. <clears throat> I actually find it uh, ennobling that uh, nobody gets to so control their lives that they only get one side of the equation. And that's what unites us all as humans and unites us all as living beings outside of our species is that no species, no, no one organism only has what's pleasant and no one being only has what's difficult. And we all have that in common. So I'm, <clears throat> for the second half of this, I'm, of this time we have here, um, I would like to invite you to consider um, your own reflection on this topic and we can do a kind of a crowdsourcing so it doesn't only have to come from one direction. I still have questions about this, so um, I have faith in it, I've proven it to myself, and I'm still wondering, what does it look like? What's the healthy heart under these new circumstances? I'm still inquiring about it. So I'm expecting all of us to be inquiring about it, trying to understand it, trying to practice with it, strengthen it. But um, it's all an active inquiry for all of us as we feel into life. So I'm curious if a few of you would share your own reflections on this topic or what your questions are on this topic. And they may not be questions you want me to answer, but just what are you questioning? You know, how do I care for the world, but also accept the world is like this? How do I want it to be different, but no, I have to also accept it is like this. That's a perennial question if you want to have some impact or how do you open your heart to the way things are when there's so much injustice and, or right in the, the flow of your life, something you've discovered on this retreat. How do I connect my heart in this situation? I don't quite know that yet or 
I'm exploring something here. There's a new element of life that I'm trying to discover. What's my heart connection to myself? How do I forgive myself if I'm visited by shame? Now that I'm a new age and I'm in a new place in life, uh, can I use all my old formulas or do I have to rediscover uh, what is wisdom? What's my exploration in my current life? We probably all couldn't uh, respond in a, in a discussion like that, but I'm curious if there are a few of you that would share what you're exploring or what questions you're turning over in your own heart around these four Brahma Viharas and how to apply them in life or, yeah. So take a moment and see if uh, any of you want to speak to this. Feel free to raise your hand. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.